Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Hey everyone, it's Reed. These next several episodes are going to be dedicated to the study and illustration of the white Christian evangelical movement in America and what it means for our politics. We've got some experts, some very thoughtful people, some authors who are all going to help us walk through exactly what's going on, how this church operates, and what it means for our democracy. I hope you enjoy listening as much as I did interviewing. And now, on with the show. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by Sarah Poster, an author and investigative journalist who covers the religious right in Republican politics. She's a columnist for MSNBC, a contributor for Talking Points Memo, and her work has been featured in many other major outlets like The New York Times, The Washington Post, and Rolling Stone. Her latest book is Unholy, Why White Evangelicals Worship at the Altar of Donald Trump. Guys, go out and get this book. Today, she's coming to us in studio from Washington, D.C. Sarah, welcome. Thanks for having me, Reed. So I'm going to start in a place you probably didn't expect, at Ford's Theater with President Abraham Lincoln watching a show and John Wilkes Booth assassinating him that night. He passed away the next day. I should say he passed away the next day, shot him that night, passed away the next day. And with that, all of the opportunity that a political genius like Abraham Lincoln would have been able to bring to a post-Civil War America and to Reconstruction died with him. And that a lot of what we're seeing and going through your your incredible book goes back to that night in April in 1865 with the mixing of racism, place in the world, education, the lost cause. And it brings us all to this place 160 years later where the issues that were still very front of mind for the entire country have ebbed and flowed. We've made progress, but here we are. The movement really never died. Interesting starting point. When I was writing my book, I actually thought of my starting point more as 1954, Brown versus Board of Education. Right. And so, you know, the Supreme Court desegregates schools. Most states in the old Confederacy refuse to desegregate. Then President Dwight Eisenhower sends the Arkansas National Guard and the 101st Airborne to desegregate Little Rock Central High. And let's be clear, like Eisenhower wasn't a particularly progressive guy when it came to race relations or integration or civil rights, but he saw it as this was the law of the land. It's my job as the chief executive to enforce the law. Yes, but I think for a lot of white conservatives, the desegregation of public schools, and then later in the 60s and 70s, busing to enforce desegregation of public schools 
was really a flashpoint of their grievances leading to the political alignments that we're seeing today. Right. And so, you know, let's bring it up to, you know, 70 years later after that. Uh, Hard to believe it's been that long. But here we are now. You wrote the first version of your book in 2020, I believe, and there was a second version that came out in 2021. So give us a sense from the moment that you first went out on the trail, you you went out to the churches, you talked to the pastors and sat in the pews Two, three, four years later. Where were we then and where are we now? Well, when I was doing the reporting for the book, Trump was president. And I think that there was still a lot of guesswork involved in, is the Christian right going to turn against him? Are they finally going to tire of his boorishness and his crudeness and his terrible policies? And as I'm writing the book, with each successive scandal and disgusting racist statement that he makes, there's no movement on that. And then by the time I write the afterword for the paperback version, which came out in 2021, the religious right has continued to rally around him in spite of and maybe even because of January 6th. Right. I mean, you know, there are plenty of incredible documentaries about that day, incredible reporting and books about that day. And and there were plenty of Christian flags flying that day. And this is where it feels like I don't want to call them tendrils because that seems too thin. And I don't want to call them threads because that doesn't seem thick enough either. I don't know what the tendons, maybe I don't know what the connective tissue is, Sarah, metaphorically. But you had sort of Trump slash MAGA and, you know, just grievance generally mixed with God or a, a particularly vengeful evangelical version of Jesus Christ with a healthy dose of racism or white nationalism thrown in. Right. I think that Trump's presidency was cemented and insured by white evangelicals. January 6th was largely carried out by, let's call them MAGA militants. You know, we all know about the role of the Proud Boys and the role of the Oath Keepers, but there was still maybe not an organizational role, but let's call it a spiritual role, of the Christian right in January 6th. They were the ones who organized and hosted the Jericho March, the first of which was on December 12th, 2020, and they continued them up until January 6th. They believed that they were going to make the metaphorical walls of the deep state fall, just like the walls of Jericho fell in the Bible. So there was definitely a significant religious Christian component to the advocacy around January 6th, even as the lieutenants, you know, ordering the breaking into the Capitol might not necessarily have been in that orbit. Right. And I'm wondering if, you know, I I was trying to explain this to somebody the other day, Sarah, is if you look at the Christian right or MAGA or Trump in the context of the Republican Party, I wonder if you had a pie, right? Remember those old pie charts in USA Today? Maybe they still do them. I feel like if the whole pie is this sort of authoritarian movement, that the Republican Party itself is a really pretty small slice of it, that there's a lot more powerful things involved. And maybe now the Republican Party is just ballot access, for lack of a better way to put it, fundraising ability. But that's not where the power lies anymore, right? If What you hear from 
you know, elites, establishment, donors is like they don't want the guy back. Well, they don't have any power over the place anymore. Right. Trump isn't even as we're recording this. Trump isn't even the presumptive nominee. And, you know, yet and he's already throwing out the chairwoman and putting his daughter in law in as a co-chair and saying, oh, by the way, the guy that runs my campaign is going to go up there, too. So it's interesting. And I, I guess I'm putting it in artfully. Maybe let me switch metaphors is that the Republican Party seems to be the host for all of this other stuff. Let's look at it another way, perhaps. And that is that since the Reagan era, the Christian right has been an essential component, basically been in a marriage with the Republican Party. The Republican Party was completely dependent on the Christian right for getting out the vote on Election Day. Without them, they were not going to win elections. And so they were relying on the Christian right for votes. And the Christian right got well, more or less got what they wanted from Republican presidents. But in their mind, it was a little less rather than more, which explains a lot about their affection for Donald Trump. Now, what I'm saying is that the takeover of the Republican Party by the Christian right happened long before Trump. But the Republican Party was able to keep them at bay in a way that put their most radical demands on the back burner. Other Republican presidents were more concerned with winning re-election. Trump was more concerned with staying in power, evading accountability for his myriad scandals. And what he found was not only had he given the religious right what they wanted in terms of policy and personnel and Supreme Court justices, but he found that a good segment of them basically saw him as a savior, a messiah for the country. And so that symbiotic relationship where they viewed him as a messiah and he opened the doors of the White House for them so that more radical and more fringy characters on the religious right became influencers and celebrities, that's kind of where we are now. Listen, I've told this story before, so the listeners have heard it. But when I was I worked for President George W. Bush and I was on his reelection campaign, you'd have meetings in the big conference room, whatever the hell we called it. And, you know, there was one guy in the whole place, near as I can tell, that represented evangelicals. His name was Gary and Gary wore the same gray suit, the same white shirt, the same red tie every day. And we didn't pay much attention to Gary. And the truth is, is that in that microcosm of a presidential campaign, Sarah, you've just laid out, we absolutely 100% took them for granted that they were going to show up. They didn't have any place else to go. Now, there were, I assume, emissaries to that part of the world that said, you know, President Bush really believes in you and yada, yada, yada. But the truth was that there was a big part of like, where else are you going to go? That's a little less in 2008 with John McCain, because John McCain was the furthest thing <laughs> from an evangelical you were going to get. And then in 2012, right, you had Robert Jeffress saying that Mitt Romney, who is of the LDS church, is, you know, part of a cult. But I think it's interesting to think about who finished second in both of those races. In 2008, it was Mike Huckabee. And in 2012, it was sort of Newt, but it was really Rick Santorum, right? So, like, they were popping their heads up and they didn't make it all the way. But then Trump shows up and, you know, it's this mix of, as I think you describe it, like, it's not that he's religious because he's not, but he's willing to stand up to everybody and be transgressive and bring the grievance of whether or not it's, you know, white nationalists or Christian evangelicals to the podium and do it unapologetically. And then you said, like with Paula White and all these other people, 
have them in where most candidates would be like, I'm not. No, you go deal with that. I'm not going to do it. So it's interesting, the trajectory that you just laid out. I think that George W. Bush was seen as, you know, one of us. He had a salvation story. Evangelicals had a certain comfort level with him for that reason. But ultimately, I think they were disappointed. He hadn't really measured up to their more extreme expectations for a Republican president. And then I think in 2008 and 2012, that grassroots evangelicals felt like evangelical elites were out of touch with what they wanted. They saw the elites as, you know, maybe settling for somebody who was politically palatable for a general election, which they considered insufficient. There's a famous story, I don't know if you remember it, from 2008, where there was a meeting of some Christian right bigwigs after John McCain got the nomination. And Paul Weyrich, this was just a few months before he passed away, you know, he cried over them not having pushed harder to nominate Mike Huckabee. And then I think in 2012, they were obviously dissatisfied with having an LDS candidate nominee at the top of the ticket. And then in the intervening years, they have two terms of Obama, which is just an enormous grievance trigger for the religious right. right. Because they think he's Kenyan and Muslim, right? And maybe the Antichrist. Right. And, you know, un-American and the rest of it. And then also Obergefell in 2015 is a huge, you know, is a huge motivator. Right. That codified gay marriage is legal. Right. So I think what happened in 2016 was you saw an elite move to anoint Ted Cruz, you know, a lot of big funders, a lot of heavy hitters, including Kellyanne Conway, who went on to work for Trump, right? They were getting behind Ted Cruz, but the base was in a very different place. The base was not interested in Ted Cruz. You saw a similar thing on a smaller scale this cycle with Ron DeSantis, right? So all the people trying to be that guy for the religious right, you know, speaking the language, doing the pastor kids cadence like Ted Cruz does. You know, that wasn't really selling to the base. The base was with Trump and then the elites followed suit. So take us through that a little bit, because what I have said is a little bit different, but it it involves words and it involves language, which is Cruz is a little bit different, but I think it's the same phenomenon as DeSantis, which is DeSantis can say the words or some of these other people can say the words, but it's like they're doing it through Google Translate, right? Like the people hear the words, but it doesn't mean the same thing. And Trump doesn't even say the right words, but they hear everything they want to hear. Yes. I think that Trump's friendship with Paula White is a very important inflection point for all of this, because I think he really studied the way televangelists talk and the trajectory of a sermon that they might give on TV. I noticed that when I started going to Trump rallies in 2016, that was the first thing I noticed. I felt like I'm sitting in the Trinity Broadcasting Network studios. So I think he really kind of got that part of the base, the kind of more charismatic Pentecostal world who really just falls in with that kind of presentation of a story and the meandering way that he does it. And the victimization. And And the victimization. And, you know, Christianity is under siege. They started to see him as a substitute for Christianity. And I think so he was simultaneously scratching the itch of that part of the base and very clearly scratching the itches of the racist part of his base. And this is this is how he pulled it all together. And I think that what the elites did 
in retrospect was they realized, okay, well, we've got to get on board because this is where the base is. How are we going to justify this? We're going to peddle this story that sometimes God chooses an unlikely leader to lead a country at a critical juncture King in its history. Cyrus and then they whatever. call King Cyrus thing. Right. And that's what they went with. And they pretty much haven't stepped back from that. Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com slash Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. It's interesting that, you know, going back, and, and I've discussed this with a couple other people on the on the show in regards to the religious right, is, you know, if you think about evangelicals, like, what do you think most about? Like, abortion, right? But abortion wasn't their thing, right? It wasn't their thing at the beginning. When, when Roe v. Wade was decided, it took like seven or eight years, and you mentioned Paul Weyrich, who was this arch sort of you know, Catholic guy, right, to sort of decide like, okay, what are we going to run on here, right? And that became the thing, you know, and we see this with Trump and we see this with authoritarian movements, which is, and this is what sometimes it's really hard for people to understand, is like the hypocrisy is baked in, which is they will move tactically. They will even move from a message perspective based on what they think is most successful. And if they need to move, they'll move. And they don't feel bad about it because it's all bullshit anyway. Right. So Wyrick was a very right-wing Catholic who was angry about Vatican II and actually ended up joining an Eastern Right church because he felt the Catholic church wasn't conservative enough for him. And he was a Republican operative in D.C. He, too, was you know dismayed about school desegregation the Supreme Court striking down mandatory school prayer and Bible reading, the civil rights movement, the women's rights movement, the fledgling gay rights movement. And while he was Catholic and opposed to abortion himself and knew other Catholics that he could organize in D.C. around that issue, he was having trouble getting the evangelical block that he thought would be essential to form this coalition. He was having trouble getting them to come on board based on the abortion issue. And what he found was that talking about public schools and not only school desegregation, you know, so it's a big package. It's not like a single issue, but school desegregation, busing, the eradication of mandatory school prayer, all of these things kind of piled onto each other. And then you see also the roots of the current assault on wokeism in public schools, the whole Critical Chris Rufo. Race. Yeah. Critical I mean, Chris Rufo is not, right. you know, an original guy. Wyrick and other, you know, this is in the very early days of the Heritage Foundation. They're going places like West Virginia and trying to fight curricula that they thought was terrible for teaching kids about civil rights and race relations and things like that. And this is what really got them going. And then they ultimately got the evangelicals to sign on to the abortion issue, too. I mean, initially, it was not evangelicals were not homogeneously against abortion. And ultimately, that was the coalition that they drew all together. But the notion that there was some light bulb that went off in all of their heads in 1973 when the Supreme Court decided 
Roe v. Wade, that's just not correct. I want to talk about the schools a little bit because I want to use it as an example of, you know, whether or not it was Brown versus Board of Education where we started or prayer in schools or busing. But they continue their moves. Right. And they, you know, you mentioned, uh, I think that Weirich was also a big part of ALEC, right, the American Legislative Exchange Council, which really went in and just took the state legislatures by storm both for religious reasons, but also for big business, right? Big business was a more than willing participant and funder of all that. But now it's like, we don't want public schools at all, right? These voucher programs, right? We're going to get rid of this stuff. Again, yes, it's teaching the cultural Marxism and all the other stuff. And you see, I think I mentioned this on another show that it was something like 80% of the school voucher money going to families in Ohio, right? Goes to like the top 10 or 20% of earners or wealth holders in the state. Like, again, it's all just a thing. It's a means to an end, which is we hate government drowning in a bathtub. We hate public schools. Take their money away. And not only that, Sarah, take their money away. Give it to us. I mean, I think that this is a movement that would like to see public schools gone. I mean, this is why you saw in the wake of school desegregation, you saw the creation of Christian schools. Right. Segregation academies. Yeah. Yes. And some of them were not segregation academies. So some of them were. Some of them were explicitly for avoiding your white kids from going to school with black kids. Some of them were not so explicit about it, but they were still de facto segregated. And then you also saw the rise of homeschooling and the proliferation of that has been a very important story for evangelicals in the Christian right. So public schools, I think, have always been a target. I think there are a lot of people on the Christian right who would like to see public schools just completely gone and just be Christian schools. Because after all, if we're a Christian nation, all of our public institutions should be Christian, too, or Christianized. I was thinking about this because I saw that, you know, this is going on in Texas, too. And I went to a private high school in Texas, in Dallas, but I had gone to public school before that. And I'm just thinking about however many millions of school kids there are in Texas, Sarah, right? Like, unless they're going to take over the actual buildings of Houston Independent School District or the Dallas Independent School District, like, where are you going to put all these kids? Right. Like, what are you going to do? And so that's the other part, too, which is like so often with these things is when the reality of what you're trying to do intersects with like their ideology, it doesn't make any darn sense. It doesn't make any sense, but it starts to make more sense that they want to make life in public schools so miserable that maybe everybody will decide to abandon them. Not that that's a realistic goal, as you say, but I think that that is their modus operandi to make it just make it so miserable for the people who they see as their enemies that they would just go to whatever ends to do that. I mean, I think that's basically Ron DeSantis's goal in, in Florida. Right. But again, that's one of those things, though, where it's like you can try that. You can try that. But along the way, you mess with a lot of people's lives. Right. And that's that's the other thing, too. And, and maybe I don't know when I say this, I, it's I'm getting a little bit away from evangelicalism and straight into like Republicans in public education. And look, I think if you have I have two kids in public school, everybody complains about public school. Right. Like that's part of it. It's never going to be perfect. It has a variety of kids from a variety of backgrounds with a variety of skills or talents or whatever. And, and it's got to find some you know, reasonable mean, right? Is it imperfect? It's the definition of imperfect. But 
you know, the alternative is no school at all or some school that indoctrinates your kid. But then also you see like in, was it Minnesota or Wisconsin, like, or some state where these Republican legislators were happy about getting rid of like subsidized school lunch, or they would, you know, make sure that like the kids got a bill for their lunch if they couldn't pay. And then at some point, if the bill was 10 bucks, whatever the number was, like they didn't get to eat anymore. And that's the reason I even bring it up, Sarah, is because it seems so antithetical as a non-practicing half Jew, half Christian to the teachings of Jesus. Okay. So this is <laughs> this is maybe a good segue for me to yeah. talk about how much the evangelical world has become consumed by the idea of spiritual warfare and the idea that this is what we're talking about when we talk about the core of Christian nationalism, that God intended America to be a Christian nation. And the Christian nation has, you know, strayed from that. Why is it strayed from that? Because there are these demonic forces who are trying to secularize it and go against God's will. And it's our duty as Christians to engage in spiritual warfare in order to restore the Christian nation. So when you start thinking that way, then you start thinking that things that you do that are goals along the way for making this happen, it alters your thinking. It alters your thinking about January 6th. It alters your thinking about public schools. You know, if you think that you are fighting this godly fight against demonic forces who are trying to take down Christian America, it leads people to all kinds of things. But, you know, we were talking about evangelicals in the 70s and what it took for Paul Eric and others to convince them to get on board with regard to abortion. Over that same period, there were a lot of changes that were going on in the evangelical world that produced the outcome that we're seeing now with the support for Trump. Religious changes, you know, the expansion and proliferation of charismatic worship practices, the intersection and integration together of these charismatic worship practices like spiritual warfare and prophesying and the intersection of those things with Christian nationalism. And so I think it's important to understand the history of the religious right and its roots in opposition to public schools and school desegregation and church-state separation issues. But it's also important to understand that a lot of changes have happened in the evangelical world that's shaping, that have shaped the MAGA base. Let me stay on the pulpit for a second or on the rally stage with Trump. You noted, you know, the charismatic nature of this. Uh, Paula White, you know, Robert Jeffress, they're all over the place. And my question is, you're seeing, an, I don't want to say it's almost daily, but it's darn near daily, Sarah more and more stories out of these kinds of churches or these kinds of congregations where the prosperity gospel is making these pastors very, very wealthy with tax-deductible money, but also there is significant and ongoing abuse of a psychological nature, of a sexual nature, and sometimes it's gone on very briefly, sometimes, oftentimes it's gone on for years. So like, Maybe it's not, I guess I'm trying to get to the point was maybe it's not surprising that so many of these pastors are good with Trump because they're either doing it, although I don't know who, or they're putting up with it. So, yes, I think the prosperity gospel has permeated not only evangelical, you know, not only charismatic churches, but evangelical churches, too. You mentioned Robert Jeffress, who is a Southern Baptist, yet he sort of 
kind of rejects that label, right? I mean, he once said to me in an interview that denominations don't matter anymore. He endorsed Paula White's book, right? So you see this proliferation of the prosperity gospel, which says, you know, God intended you to be rich. You can speak wealth and health into existence if you, you know, if you have faith, you can make that happen. And by the way, God will reward you with a supernatural return on your investment if you give me, the televangelist, your money. So you can see how that's a theology that fits pretty well with but Trumpism. How is that different than Tony Robbins or Est or any of those, you know, sort of, I mean, is it all just the same thing, which is people are looking for an answer and you know, sometimes the bigger, the louder and the crazier the person trying to give you the answer, the more you believe them. I mean, is it is it a psychological phenomenon? Well, I think it's a religious phenomenon from the standpoint that people are looking for a religious justification for this. And they're looking for religious reasons about why things happen or don't happen or why it's OK to be super wealthy or why it things might or might not happen to you. If you believe that you can speak your health and wealth into existence and God will grant that to you if you're faithful, but those things don't happen, then you start to question your faith. So it's not only a positive thing, but it's a negative thing for people. I would ask, because let's say there's a retired grandmother in a three-bedroom A-frame in suburban Omaha, right? And she watches Jeffress or she watches Paula White or, you know, Creflo Dollar or any of them. Right. And she's sending her 25 bucks a week or 100 bucks a week. And then, you know, I think I don't know if it was in your book. There's a story of like, you know, a woman died and her family found all these checks that like their mother had written to these people. That was right? in my other book. <laughs> OK, yeah. OK, yeah. And it's it's one of those things where, again, just like Trump, these folks seem to have no compunction whatsoever about taking precious dollars from folks who probably don't have many to give. That's right. It is just a complete scam to tell people that you are supposed to give your pastor your first fruits. That means before you pay your rent, before you make your car payment, your first fruits are the best part, and that's what you give your pastor. And if you do that, you're going to get a supernatural return from God. And if you don't, that just means you didn't have enough faith. Theologically, if this is about what's going to happen to my soul or to your soul after we leave this mortal coil. Why do they spend so much time on earth worrying about how you live or what kind of school my kids go to? Well, that's the part about authoritarianism and control. And they simply do not like diversity of religion. They don't like diversity of thought. I mean, this is very much about confining people into a certain mindset about what the Bible says. It's confining people into a certain mindset about what democracy is, what America is about. And so you and I could talk about this for the next five hours about how it conflicts with your view of the Bible or my view of the Bible or untold numbers of other people's view of the Bible. But it doesn't really get us anywhere in terms of understanding it because, like, they have created a closed ecosystem where their view of the Bible is the only acceptable one. So it all works together, right? Which is, I can justify my means here because my ends are creating a godly society. And if I'm part of that, 
then I will be rewarded in heaven by Jesus and by the Lord. Therefore, if you think about it, I, I, I steal this expression from John Ward of Yahoo, who's an evangelical himself, right? Now you've got the supernatural on your side. Well, I mean, the prosperity gospel is definitely driven by supernatural beliefs or beliefs in supernatural occurrences. But it's not the only part of the charismatic world that has had an impact on evangelicalism and a huge impact on Trumpism. And that is the idea of spiritual warfare, prophecy. And so if these, you know, modern day apostles and prophets can hear directly from God and tell you what God wants or what God is predicting and why you should carry out spiritual warfare to carry out God's will. I mean, that takes us into another, you know, in another stratosphere of religion and politics, which is a lot less grounded in, say, the reality of politics, of advocating for against for or against same-sex marriage or abortion. I mean, this takes us into or any another, policy or right. any policy. Right. It takes us into just another another place. The other night I was able to watch a movie. I think it's called Against All Enemies. And it's about the members of the military who participated in January 6th. And one of the main subjects uh, is a guy down in Texas. And, you know, he was in the military, big guy, cowboy hat. He's got his AR-15. He's got his nine millimeter on his hip. And he's got his Bible. So my question for you is, when does spiritual warfare become temporal violence? I think that's a huge question that the proponents of spiritual Or maybe warfare, it has already. I think it's a question that they haven't answered. They always like to quote from Ephesians, this is a battle against principalities and powers, not against flesh and blood. And so that is their shield against being accused of provoking actual violence. But I think what we saw on January 6th is not necessarily a big name pastor inciting people to go to the Capitol or something like that. What we saw was just how much this idea of Christian nationalism and the spiritual warfare for national uh, Christian nationalism, but also very specifically for Trump, has just permeated not just the evangelical world, but the MAGA world as a whole. And so it gave a lot of people a kind they they saw it as a kind of permission, right? Wow, like I'm just like a guy with an AR-15 who would like to, you know, go smash in the windows of the Capitol building. But I also, you know, have God on my side, by the way. You know, we're eight-ish months away from Election Day. Every time I say it, it's another month gone by. So we move so fast, Sarah. But where is the movement with Trump now? As we look forward to November, do you think it is stronger for him I was talking to a reporter the other day who who was speaking to an evangelical leader who said they need to turn out 6% more evangelical voters for Trump to win. First of all, I, I absolutely believe the guy's math because these people are very smart and they're very highly organized. But do you think that his inclination to always go to the base will keep the base happy but have a potentially, and I'm, I'm asking a political science question here, you know, have a corresponding effect of pushing otherwise like non-evangelical Republicans away, because what I found with Trump and MAGA is like they never come back to normal. They go further and further into crazy land. I mean, another interesting curveball to throw into that mix is there's been some survey data finding that more people began identifying as evangelical 
during and after Trump's presidency. So like he made it he made it a little bit more popular. You know, this is all obviously about turnout. And, you know, the turnout is going to matter a lot at the margins. I do think that there is a tiny sliver of the evangelical world that is tired of Trump. But you see it, say, in Iowa, where Bob Vanderplatz says, don't vote for Trump, vote for Ron DeSantis. But I think, you know, in the base, it's a little more hard to measure. Like I said, I think there's a sliver. I think there's a sliver of evangelical women who are appalled at Trump, especially in the context of the sprawling sex abuse scandal in the Southern Baptist Convention, for example, right? But I'm not sure that it's a sliver that's going to make an electoral difference. And I think that when it comes down to it in November, I think we're all now looking at it in the context of Trump versus DeSantis, Trump versus Haley. But when it's Trump versus Biden, I think evangelicals are going to come home to Trump and the Republican Party. And do you think that they will be, let's say this, let's say that Trump loses and he loses by at least as much as he did in 20, hopefully by more. Do you think this movement will accept his loss, his defeat? I think a lot of them haven't accepted his defeat in 2020. Again, you know, returning to the polling data, I think white evangelicals have among the highest rates of rejection of the 2020 results, the belief that it was stolen from Trump and that Joe Biden is not the legitimate president of the United States. How does a movement like this occupy so much space and still be in so many ways, I'm probably being too harsh by half or too hyperbolic by half, but still be so disconnected from like the reality of America? Well, I mean, I think that this has been true for a while, but it's even more accentuated in the Trump era. And evangelicals play an outsized role in Republican electoral politics. So because of that, they play an outsized role in our politics as a whole, right? They make up something like 30 to 40 percent of the Republican electorate in presidential election years. In certain states, they make up more than that. And so in our asymmetric election system with the Electoral College, the asymmetric Senate, they end up playing an outsized role in our politics. So this is why not only that Trump won in 2016, but that he withstood the impeachment attempt, the first impeachment attempt, because the religious right, they just came out against it. They put the pressure on senators and members of Congress. And these electeds, they know that they need these voters come November. So evangelicals are, you know, a sliver, you know, not a sliver, but, you know, a not certainly far from a majority of the population, but they get out to vote at a higher rate than other demographics do. And they play such a huge role in Republican Party politics that Republicans can't ignore them and the rest of us are stuck with them. Yeah. And it's a good reminder. And I say this to all of my friends who are Democrats, big D Democrats out there and small D Democrats, right, is whatever your issue is, like whatever your issue is, from a policy perspective, whatever your issue is with a political perspective, whatever your issue is individually with Joe Biden, even right. Understand that the people that you're up against, that we're up against, will show up. They will show up. They will show up every time they're asked. It will be 
a no-brainer, right? It was, I think, 81% of evangelicals that voted for Trump in 16. It went up to 84, right? He's got, again, he's got to increase that number, right, both as a percentage and as just a gross vote number. But that's one thing I think that a lot of times we don't understand is, like, they're not, like, I'm upset with Joe Biden, so I might not vote. I'm upset with so-and-so, so I might not vote. Maybe they were with John McCain, right? Maybe they were with Mitt Romney, but not with Donald Trump. And so now let's go to what this election means to the white evangelical Christian nationalist, you could call it whatever it is. If Trump wins, what does that mean for this movement? Well, it means that once again, they will have access to the White House, something that they really loved during his first term was that they got to go to the White House all the time. They got to have praise and worship meetings and sang, you know, praise and worship music and spoke in tongues and did all of this stuff right in the White House. They got to lay hands on Trump in the Oval Office. These access things mean a lot to a lot of the kind of more celebrity influencer yeah. types in the religious right. Because they want the pictures. They want the footage. Exactly. Right. But then there's another component of this where the Heritage Foundation types are going to get to carry out their policy initiatives in another Trump administration. So that means assaults on church-state separation and abortion rights and LGBTQ rights and more judicial appointments if the Republicans control the Senate. So there's kind of two sides to it. There's the celebrity influencer side, which is just going to be a lot of crazy. And then there's the much more serious and policy side, which, you know, they have basically laid out in that Heritage Foundation 2025 document. I know, which I it's like 900 pages. And I'd be lying if I said I read it. I read the clips about it. But Sarah, I do have to buckle down and read the whole thing. And, and Rob, just make a note. We have to do a series on that, too, when we get a chance to read it. Um, all right. So, Sarah, and what happens to the evangelical movement if Trump loses? Well, I think what we're going to see is just a lot more disinformation about Joe Biden, a lot more disinformation about Kamala Harris, more you know spiritual warfare stuff, more BS investigations by people like Comer and Jordan. And if they hold the House, you know, who knows what they might Which try they to do. Which they can't even with. do just on the natural at this point. <laughs> Right. Exactly. I mean, I mean, you know, I guess we have to question whether Mike Johnson, who we haven't even talked about, um, who's so relevant to this conversation. Um, but, you know, will he still be speaker two months from now, much less in 2025? Um, but will we see another attempt to kind of do a January 6th? I mean, will we see an effort, assuming he's still speaker, will we see some sort of effort to not certify the election or some kind of shenanigans like that. I mean, I think that all of this is on the table. And if you want to think about what a second Biden term would look like, just think about a second Obama term when they were, you know, equally grievance laden and trying to, you know, peddle in disinformation and motivate the base for the next election cycle. I mean, even in his first term, remember what Mitch McConnell said about Barack Obama, my job is to make him a one-term president. And there's so much about this, just as an aside, and, and I, I'm not looking for an answer here, Sarah, but there's so much that when the history of this time is written, Mitch McConnell will be, if not a prime bad guy, the prime bad guy. 
that he was the one who could have stopped a lot of this and time and again refused to do so. Time and again capitulated. Time and again said, but if we do this, we won't keep the Senate, right? Because he wants, I mean, and you know, that's sometimes we forget that there are individuals who, as, as Buckley said, stand athwart, you know, stand astride history and say, no, that should have been a Mitch McConnell. And he kept refusing to do it. The rest of them don't surprise me that they're gone. But, you know, it's it's hard to believe that even with all of the stuff going on once in a while, one person can choose to make a difference and a guy like him chose not to. All right. So, Sarah, tell us, where can we find your work? Where can we find you online? And what else are you working on? So I'm working on something right now that I'm not at liberty to talk about. Um, <laughs> I do write pretty regularly for MSNBC. I have a website, which is just sarahposner.com. If you want to see older work of mine, you can find an archive of my columns at MSNBC um, and an archive of a lot of my work uh, on my website, sarahposner.com. Absolutely. So, and uh, guys, unholy, why white evangelicals worship at the altar of Donald Trump. Very informative, very readable. Please go out and get it. As always, gang, you can find me on Twitter and TikTok at Reed Galen on threads and Instagram at Reed underscore Galen underscore LP and over at Substack, the home front. Please follow me, Sarah Posner. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Reed. Everybody else. We'll see you next time. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter, at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. If you want to message the podcast directly, please send an email to podcast at lincolnproject.us. And if you want to personally join the fight to save our nation's democracy, visit jointheunion.us. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. I'll see you on the next episode. Thank you.